There's a dangerous teaching that has been around the church throughout history. It's popped up here and there in different forms. And this teaching is commonly called sinless perfectionism. Put simply, it's the idea that after someone is saved, that it's possible for them to go on their whole earthly life completely perfect without ever sinning again. Sinless perfection. We see the early church fighting against this teaching in pretty blunt fashion. 1 John chapter 1, 8 through 10 says, If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar his word is not in us. The point cannot be made much clearer than that. Someone who says that they have not sinned is, is lying. A lying tongue re- reveals a, a lying heart. Paul humbly addresses the war with sin that rages in his own heart in Romans 7, where he says he struggles with doing the things that he hates and the things that he loves. He does not have the ability to carry those things out. Rather than attaining a sinless and perfected state on this side of heaven, the Christian grows in their sanctification and holiness in a progressive way throughout their life. There's, uh, in a much later chapter of church history, there's a story that, is, that floats around out there about Charles Spurgeon. Uh, he and another man were invited to this event and to speak. And this other man was, was preaching, and this man was teaching this sinless perfectionism and even claimed that he had reached that point, that he had reached that point of perfection, uh, not, not sinning anymore. Spurgeon, as he was hearing this, as the story goes, didn't respond as he was sitting and listening. Uh, but the next morning at breakfast, he grabbed a, a pitcher of milk and proceeded to dump it over this man's head, in which he did not respond in a way that a sinless, uh, perfected man would. Now, I, I need to give you a little disclaimer about that story. I said it's floating around out there. Uh, I'm not 100% certain that it is historically accurate. Uh, I, I actually uh, asked a, uh, an expert in Spurgeon history if he had heard this, and he said that he had never heard that story. And so he thinks that's probably not true. Um, but he, he's actually going to look into it a little bit more to see. Um, but the point is still the same. If, if someone's claiming to, to be living in, in, in sinless perfection, it's pretty easy to actually watch their life and see that that's not the case. That, that is not true. Uh, that is a matter of, of pride uh, in their heart. One of the dangers of uh, the sinless perfectionist movement is that it can teach people to believe that they, they don't need to look at their own life and their own heart to, to root out the sin because they don't believe they do have sin. 
They're not looking in their heart to, to change. Um, what, what reason would we have to progress in the faith if you were perfect? What reason would there be to put to death the old man and, and put on the new man? What, is there, what reason would there be to put to death what is earthly within you? Uh, there wouldn't be a reason for that if we were perfect. Um, but this is not what we see Paul teaching. He uses himself as an example of someone who is fervently and in a disciplined manner, like a man running a race, uh, pressing on in the faith. Paul addresses this issue of uh, perfection in our passage this morning. Uh, He provides us with the truth about our life waging war against sin, uh, while also giving motivation to pursue holiness and not allow our hearts to grow complacent in the grace that God has provided us with. So we're going to look at a few different ways that we're called to press on in the faith. Uh, So if you haven't already, turn to Philippians chapter 3. We're going to be looking at specifically verses 12 to 16, but I'm going to read uh, verse 1 through 16. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and the glory and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. Whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him in the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, But I press on to make it my own, because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own. But one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead. I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature think this way. And if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. Lord, this morning as we look at your word, I ask that you would open our eyes, uh, that we would uh, hear uh, the truth uh, that you have for us. I ask that you'd help us to have uh, hearts of of humility, uh, that by your grace we would see areas in our life where we need to uh, grow uh, and and repent and and turn towards you. And ask that you'd help us to, to live in that manner. Uh, as we worship you. Amen. So first of all, press on in humility. 
Press on in humility. Paul says, not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect. Right? So Paul just warned the church to watch out for people who place their hope in attaining righteousness by being obedient to the law. In their pride, these people have placed confidence in their own works of righteousness. They've placed confidence in their own ability, their own strength to keep the law. To, to trust in these things, our own works of righteousness, is a rejection of the gospel. It's a rejection of the work of Christ on behalf of sinners. Uh, trusting in our own works is it's a devastating belief that uh, leads those who believe it away from the cross of Christ and, and towards a self-righteous life that falls embarrassingly short of the glory of God. Pride blinds us from our sin, our faults, our failures. A proud heart ultimately does not see any reason to be saved, uh, let alone improve, because how could you improve this? So Paul combats this idea. Even with all of Paul's works, which he recounted for us to prove a point against the, the Judaizers, he, he counts it all as rubbish in comparison to the surpassing worth of Jesus Christ. Because true righteousness comes from Jesus, not from us. Our own works will never amount to making our soul righteous, but the life of Christ applied to us can make us holy and blameless in the sight of God. And this is the righteousness that is from God that depends upon faith in Jesus Christ. But mankind gravitates toward pride, which includes you and me. We've talked about this quite a bit in, in Sunday school in the, in the last weeks, about practical ways that pride shows up in our heart and in our life. One major way we can see if, if we're proud, a sign of pride is to look at how often uh, we repent. How often do you pray prayers of confession and, and prayers of, of repentance? If you, do, if you find that you don't often pray prayers of, of confession, it, it may be a sign of, of pride in your life. And with our prayers of confession and repentance, the more specific we are with our sin as we pray, uh, I believe that's the better. We see prayers in, in Scripture like uh, the, um, you have the, the Pharisee and then the sinner that, who says, Lord, I, I've sinned. Please grant forgiveness. Lord, have mercy upon me, a sinner. These are wonderful prayers that we should all pray often. It's a good prayer. I also want to encourage you uh, to Pray prayers of confession that, that you specifically ask for forgiveness for a specific sin and, and more than just in general. When you are able to specifically name out a sin in your prayer, that helps you to turn away from that specific issue in your life and to walk in a way that you're pursuing the Lord, to put it to death. For example, um, if you were to pray something like this, Lord, I, I lashed out with my tongue towards my children as they disobeyed. 
Lord, forgive me for my pride, my selfish heart that showed itself in the way that I spoke to my kids. I need your grace and forgiveness to help me to, to treat my children in the same way that you've treated me. Um, that, that prayer, um, there's a specificity in a prayer like that that helps us to move away from a, a, a sin that so easily entangles and move us towards holiness. There's a humble awareness of a, a specific sin in life and not just a, a sin in general. And we see some of Paul's humility in, in verse 12 as he speaks about the fact that he has not yet obtained the resurrection from the dead. He has not yet obtained perfection. He's not arrived, and he knows it. And it doesn't bother him to share that fact to the church, the fact that he has not arrived yet. Uh, sinless perfectionism it teaches an overrealized eschatology. When those who are in Christ attain the resurrection of the dead, they will no longer sin. This is true. We have this to look forward to in eternity. It's going to be an amazing thing, isn't it? Where sorrow and sickness and, and, and death and sin is really no more. It's a wonderful thing to look forward to. that has not yet fully arrived. And now notice that the way that Paul uses the fact that he is not already perfect, he does not use it as an excuse for his life. That can be a temptation for us to excuse ourselves. So he's not, he's not saying, well, nobody's perfect as a way of trying to pass off uh, the issue of not being perfect. Um, he, he's not excusing himself. And this, this can be a danger to, to fall into being complacent in our sanctification because we know that we're not perfect and we know that we're not going to be perfect on this side of eternity. But what we see is the exact opposite from Paul. In knowing that he has not arrived... This does not bring about an apathetic contentedness of an attitude towards his life, but we see Paul saying he's pressing on. He is pressing on. Paul is moving forward. He's not sitting back and feeling okay about the quality of his maturity in the faith. The imagery is that of a sprinter chasing after a prize. Someone who is running hard after a goal. That requires effort, motivation, practice, and, the, and a desire for the goal. And this picture is consistent with, with Paul's other writings. In 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 24, we see, Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. 
That is not a description of someone who is apathetic or complacent in their faith. We press on in humility by disciplining ourselves for the purpose of godliness. And this discipline requires us to push onward with a holy discontentedness as we give thanks to God for his forgiveness and and grace that he offers uh, while also desiring to to grow in our obedience uh, to the Lord and to grow in our Christ-likeness. The fact that you're going to have sin in your life is, is not uh, an excuse to, to lazily go throughout life without fighting sin in your own heart. Press on in humility. Take action. I already mentioned uh, one aspect of how we can take action uh, in our prayers of repentance, being specific about the sin in our life. This helps us train our hearts and minds to be looking uh, for those specific issues in, in our own life, to repent and to change. Another way, in terms of action, another way is to have other trusted people in our life that we confess our sin to. James 5.16 says, Therefore confess your sins to one another and pray for one another, that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. How easy is it to confess your sin to another person? It can be be difficult. Um, It can be hard. um, But it's fruitful and edifying for our lives, for our hearts. Um, Confessing our sin uh, to each other takes humility. It also helps us put sin to death in our life as it's brought out to the open, as it's brought into the light. And so press on in humility. Secondly, press on by trusting in Christ's work. It says, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. This this phrase highlights the wonder of the gospel. Christ Jesus has made me his own. If you have repented and believed in Jesus, this is true about you. Christ has made you his own. This is the truth that you can live your life out of. Your confidence in pressing on comes from the fact that that Jesus has already made you his own. All of our growth in pressing on in the faith comes from the truth of the gospel. Paul is in awe of what Jesus has done for him. Jesus pursued after him, ambushed him on the road in order to save him. And none of this was was Paul's doing. He was on his way to to persecute more Christians. He was a a zealous man uh, fighting against the church. But God made Paul his own. And spiritual maturity always works hand in hand with the gospel. You cannot grow in spiritual maturity by leaving behind the gospel. And there was a a false maturity that was being presented to the Philippian church through the Judaizers. And that was a maturity based upon law-keeping, apart from the work of Christ. 
However, the truth of the matter is that our growth and maturity, maturity only come to us as a gift of God, as, as Jesus has made us his own by his grace. Uh, Paul had said back in uh, chapter 2, verse 13, For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. It's the Lord who raises us from the dead, provides us with, with spiritual life, and he's the one who provides us with faith to even trust in him and to grow in the likeness of Christ. Our maturity is founded upon God's love for us and the pursuit of Jesus of us. We can't take any of that credit. We can't take any of that glory. 1 John 4.10 provides us with a good reminder of this. As John says, And this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. So we press on because of what Jesus has already done for us. We press on because of who Jesus has made us to be in him. And we press on as we grow more and more into the likeness of Christ. And so remember the gospel in terms of, of action steps. Preach the gospel to yourself every day. When you rise in the morning, as you go to bed to sleep, remember the gospel. Allow the meditations of your heart and mind to, to marinate in the riches of God's grace on your life. That, that Jesus, in his love for sinners, made it possible for lowly and rebellious people like us to be made pure and holy and blameless in the sight of God. Reminisce upon that. Remember that in your normal daily life. I, I know a temptation I face in, in my own life is to forget the, the goodness and the grace of God. Um, there's so many things that happen in our life. Um, kids are growing up fast. Um, school, work, activities, meeting with friends and family, and all, all these things are, 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 are good things. Um, we can't allow the busyness of our life to get in the way of remembering the truth of, of who God is and what he's done and how that impacts our life. Um, these, these good things, they, they can be a problem when, when we get lost in them. When we are so lost in the earthly things that are happening in life that we forget the gospel, we forget the gifts that God has given us. Press on in your faith by, by trusting in the work of Christ. Do not forget your first love. There are some things we are called to forget. But we're not called to forget the work of Christ. This leads us to the third point, third way to press on. Press on by forgetting what is behind and looking toward what is ahead. Press on by forgetting what is behind and looking toward what is ahead. Brothers, I do not consider that I've made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead. I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. So again, Paul does not consider that he's made this his own. 
And this should be our default understanding in our life. As we grow in godliness and holiness, we see more and more the ways in which we are not holy and righteous, which leads us to continually thank the Lord for his goodness in the gospel. It leads us to worship him more at the heart of gratitude as we understand the riches of the forgiveness that he has offered to us. But there is one thing that Paul does consider. He says forgetting. Forgetting. Another way to look at that would be neglect. Why is Paul forgetting or neglecting what lies behind him? What is the purpose of that? Looking back has the potential to lead us in in two different directions, uh, toward pride or toward despair. Uh, And here's how. If the way we look behind is by looking at all of our past accomplishments and achievements, uh, we're in danger of living in pride by by thinking we've done this incredible job of, of honoring the Lord with our life. And Paul had just re- reminded the people to not place their trust in the flesh. Paul looks behind and shares some of his achievements, um, but his past achievements don't mean anything to him. Uh, he, he is not looking behind for any sort of accolades or any sort of pats on the back or attaboys or, or good jobs. Um, these are things of the past. Don't get bogged down in pride by looking at your past achievements. This can breed an an entitled heart, an entitled attitude to say, you know, look at all of what I've accomplished. Look at all of what I've done. I deserve this. I deserve that. No. We deserve the wrath of God. That is what we truly deserve it as, as sinners, and it's only because of the grace of, of Jesus Christ that we do not receive that. We do not place God in our debt by any of our good works. The good works that we accomplish, we accomplish by his power and by his planning. Ephesians 2, verse 10 says, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. All those good works that we have done come from the plan of God anyway. They're not ours. God is not a debtor to anybody. God does not owe you or me anything. We owe him our worship, our life, our love. If there are any past achievements, godliness in our life, We owe all the thanks and the glory to the Lord for that. He is the reason for our changed hearts and our changed minds. He is the reason why we have life. And so this type of forgetfulness of what lies behind is meant to motivate us towards continuing on in our faith rather than living in the past glory days. But looking into the past can also lead us to despair. This is if we are to focus intently on our past sin. 
Even though Paul had a lot in his life that he could look back upon and boast about, he also had a lot of failures, a lot of sin. He had to live with the fact that he did those things. He persecuted the church. He watched over the, the martyr of Stephen being stoned. He would have had memories of that. And I'm sure that there are other memories that stuck with him as well. Of, uh, that had the potential to haunt him. Um, he, he was a wicked man who sought the harm and destruction of, of the people of God. And Paul would not allow himself to be paralyzed by his past sin and failure. Uh, instead, he, he repented and looked at his past with great humility. Uh, he called himself the chief of sinners. This knowledge of how much he had sinned uh, led him to pursue after Jesus in love more and more, uh, rather than living in a, a constant regret. Are you somebody who dwells upon your, your past sin? Uh, there's comfort for you in the gospel. Uh, if you have repented and asked for forgiveness from the Lord, believed in Jesus Christ, uh, you can move forward in, in freedom. Um, there isn't any good in continuing to dwell upon whatever that issue was in your life. Um, you can't change the past, but thankfully, God can forgive you for your past. If you are saved, your past no longer defines you. Um, instead, you are a child of God. There is therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Um, we can find comfort, great comfort in that this morning. Past achievements are, are great, uh, but we look forward. Um, don't live in the past glory days. Our past sins are forgiven by Christ. Don't dwell upon them and live in despair because of them. Paul says he is straining forward. He is stretching and reaching out for the prize. And the goal is the prize of the upward call of God and Jesus Christ, continuing to pursue the Lord until one day he, he calls us home. And lastly, press on by holding true to what you have attained. Press on by holding true to what you have attained. Let those of us who are mature think this way, and if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. Those who are mature in the faith know that they're not perfect. They know that they need to grow in maturity. And this is how you and I are to, to see our life. Uh, growth and maturity in Christ will, will lead us uh, to constantly see our need for more growth and maturity in Christ. And those who believe they've already achieved maturity, already achieved perfection, show themselves to be immature and imperfect. Uh, I found a, a helpful uh, 
It's a lengthy quote from J.C. Ryle. As I, as I study this passage, I think it's helpful. So this is what J.C. Ryle says. I ask in the third place whether it is wise to use vague language about perfection and to press on Christians a standard of holiness as attainable in this world for which there is no warrant to be shown either in Scripture or experience. I doubt it. That believers are exhorted to perfect holiness in the fear of God, to go on to perfection, to be perfect, no careful reader of his Bible will ever think of denying. But I've yet to learn that there is a single passage in Scripture which teaches that a literal perfection, a complete and entire freedom from sin in thought or word or deed is attainable or has ever been attained by any child of Adam in this world. A comparative perfection, a perfection of knowledge and all-around consistency in every relation of life, a thorough soundness in every point of doctrine. This may be seen occasionally in some of God's believing people, but as an absolute literal perfection, the most eminent saints of God in every age have always been the very last to lay claim to it. On the contrary, they have always had the deepest sense of their own utter unworthiness and imperfection. The more spiritual light they have enjoyed, the more they have seen their own countless defects and shortcomings. The more grace they have had, the more they've been clothed with humility. What saint can be named in God's word of whose life many details are recorded, who was literally and absolutely perfect? Which of them all, when writing about himself, ever talks of feeling free from imperfection? On the contrary, men like David and Paul and John declare in the strongest language that they feel in their own hearts weakness and sin. The holiest men of modern times have always been remarkably remarkable for deep humility. Have we ever seen holier men than the martyred John Bradford or Hooker or Usher or Baxter or Rutherford or M. Shane? Yet one can read the writings and the letters of these men without seeing that they felt themselves debtors to mercy and grace every day. And the very last thing they ever laid claim to was perfection. In the face of such facts as these, I must protest against the language used in many quarters in these last days about perfection. I must think that those who use it either know very little of the nature of sin or the attributes of God or of their own hearts or of the Bible or of the meaning of words. When a professing Christian coolly tells me that he has got beyond such hymns as just as I am and that they are below his present experience, though they suited him when he first took up religion, I must think his soul is in a very unhealthy state. When a man can talk coolly of the possibility of living without sin while in the body and can actually say that he has never had an evil thought for three months, I can only say that, in my opinion, he is a very ignorant Christian. I protest, I protest against such teaching as this. It not only does no good, but does immense harm. It disgusts and alienates from religion, far-seeing men of the world who know it is in incorrect and untrue. It depresses some of the best of God's children who feel they never can attain perfection of this kind. It puffs up many weak brethren who fancy they are something when they are nothing. In short, it is a dangerous delusion. That is from J.C. Ryle about perfection. Do not fall into this delusion of thinking that you've made it. 
thinking that you no longer need to, to press on, no longer need to grow in maturity, thinking that you've already arrived. And Paul men- actually mentions that for those who think otherwise, God will eventually reveal that to them. True perfection and maturity is not found in ourselves. It's found in, in Jesus Christ. A mark of maturity in your life will be that you are seeing areas where you need to improve to, to be more like Christ. And you aren't downcast about it, but joyously thankful for the Lord. And as, as he has pursued after you and made you his own, as you press on after him in thankfulness, this, this pressing on, this pursuit of Christ is marked by joy because we know the ultimate end result, don't we? That, that Jesus has won the victory over sin and death. That he has achieved salvation for us. That we have an eternal future with, with Christ forever. And so only let us hold true to what we have attained in the gospel. Hold true to Christ. As you press on in humility, as you press on in, in trusting in Christ's work for you, as you press on by forgetting what lies behind and looking forward to what lies ahead, press on by holding true to the faith. Hold true to the gospel. It's a blessing. The gospel, isn't it? The fact that this, this pressing on, we're not even saved from, by that. We're saved by Christ. And yet, because of his grace, we're able to, to grow and mature, grow in our love for him, grow in our obedience to him, But our salvation isn't even in our growth. Our salvation is in the Lord. We can rest in that this morning. Let's pray. Lord, we're amazed by you. Lord, I ask that you'd help us to to press on. Um, We're grateful for the grace that you've, you've given to us, the righteousness that has been imputed to those who believe in you, that it's possible for us to be made, made perfect and holy in your sight because of the work of, of Christ. Lord, I ask that you'd help us in our life that we would not grow complacent in your grace, but instead we would have this, a holy discontentedness about our life that we would uh, be earnestly seeking out areas in our hearts and minds where we need to grow, where we need to mature, where we are not, in fact, perfect, but need to repent and become more like Christ. And we thank you for your goodness and the fact that you help us in that. Uh, You reveal sin to us. Uh, You give us the power to overcome uh, temptation, uh, to live a godly life. And so, Lord, I ask that you'd help us to, to press on to grow in maturity, to grow in Christ-likeness for your honor and glory. Amen.